Hello, it's Tuesday 26th of April. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will sift through Southeast Asia's latest travel developments from different continents. I'm in KL, Gary is in Oxford. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. Well, Hannah, we are almost there now. After two years of talking about this, Southeast Asia's incremental and dramatically drawn-out reopenings are kind of nearing an all-systems-go status, aren't they? We've had some good news this week from Thailand. We've had some good news from Singapore. We're hoping for some more good news from Malaysia. How do, how do you sort of reflect on, on where we are right now, Hannah, as we're coming up to May 2022? Yeah, um, you know what? I'm really excited. I mean, I know we last last episode we ended on a bit of a gloomy note, and there are huge headwinds facing um, tourism in the region, as we were discussing. But I feel like finally, finally, you know, there's this positive momentum. Things are opening up. Yeah, I, I think I just a sense of relief. I think actually, <laughs> how about you? <laughs> yeah. Well, and we're kind of in that stage now where we're just getting a marketing blast, aren't we? Whenever you open uh, your email, your WhatsApp, your your social media, LinkedIn, it's just a blast of marketing promotions and new in- initiatives and new incentives and talking about the positive sides of uh, the statistics that we're reading. So, yeah, the mood has changed. That's definitely true. I agree with you. There are some headwinds up ahead. We don't quite know exactly how the rest of this year will pan out in terms of supply and demand, but gosh, if we go back over those two years, Hannah, we would have given everything really to be talking in the terms that we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. And you took your first international flight, didn't you, Gary? Tell us about that. I did. Yeah, I flew last Thursday night from Kuala Lumpur International to London Heathrow, a 13 hour flight, slightly longer than normal because of the slight rerouting um, away from Russian and Ukrainian airspace, but not too much. Actually, we flew over the Black Sea, flew quite close to Lviv, but we went over Bulgaria and Romania. Um, But the flight was completely full. There was not a spare seat on the flight from Kuala Lumpur. Kuala Lumpur National Airport itself, probably a little bit busier than I was expecting, but still relatively quiet. Once you get out of the the actual departure hall and you get into uh, passport control and then you go through the hand luggage scan and then you fan out through the terminal, uh, there's still a lot of space. Most things are open um, and there is some traffic. You know, you look at the uh, the flights board, Uh, There are a number of flights going in different directions, so certainly positive, but it really didn't uh, prepare me for arriving at London Heathrow, which was absolutely chaotic. Heathrow only has three terminals operating now. Terminal 1 actually closed in 2015 and they're revamping uh, Terminal 2 to make that bigger. And Terminal 4 is currently closed and will reopen um, probably in the summer. So that does mean that incoming flights are channeled at the moment, quite heavily into Terminal 2, which is where we land landed. Uh, Malaysia Airlines pre-pandemic didn't fly into Terminal 2. It was usually into Terminal 4. It was absolutely chaotic in the passport control hall. I've never seen anything like it. You have these snaking lines going at all angles. It takes over an hour. Uh, there is no social distancing. There is very little mask wearing. So if you are flying into London, be prepared for that. People do stand very close to each other. Uh, they do talk in each other's faces and they do cough as well. So you have to be prepared for something of a culture shock. But on the other side of things, you know, you look at the flight board arriving into London and flights are coming from absolutely everywhere. The buzz is certainly back in the UK. I walked around Oxford at the weekend. Tourists absolutely everywhere. Everybody out enjoying the sunshine. 
uh, and enjoying the chance again to, to feel like a normal traveler. So, yeah, in the UK at the moment, I have to say that the buzz is definitely back. Oh, I miss Oxford in the springtime. It's beautiful. So you saw an interesting story um, about how governments in the UK are looking how international travel should be handled in uh, future pandemics. You want to tell us a bit more? Yeah, this, I picked this up yesterday in the media here, in the newspaper media. Didn't really get much coverage, <clears throat> excuse me, on TV news. But this is a report that was done by members of parliament in the UK, analysing the, the procedures and the policies during COVID-19. They're going back over almost everything, really. We're moving towards, in the UK, uh, a full inquiry into just why the UK had such a huge death toll and, and how the pandemic was pretty badly managed from government levels. One of the areas that they're focusing on is air travel and the policy of shutting down air travel pretty much. And the findings um, were, were probably quite surprising for, for Asian listeners uh, in, in the fact that the, the findings basically say that the, the restrictions on international travel were too harsh in the UK and they actually had no effect on the transmission of the disease. Um, but all it really did was overly penalize the aviation sector, the travel sector, and that in future, if there's going to be another pandemic, they would try to put in place uh, a less harsh shutdown of international travel and trying to manage it in a more staged way. You know, that's quite different to what actually happened in Asia. And you know, we did have uh, this shutdown and then we reopened in phases. The UK really pretty much opened very, very quickly once it was able to do so. And it's now looking in hindsight at some of the mistakes that it made. Um, but, you know, th this approach to the future of COVID here in, in the Western Hemisphere is quite different to the Eastern Hemisphere. There is very much this focus here everywhere you see it that we have to live with this, we have to move on very, very quickly. And there, there is a, almost a widespread belief that this won't get any worse, that, you know, things will only get better. Uh, we hope that that's the case. But having read this report and looked at the way that they uh, would treat aviation in future, it would certainly be very different than it was over the last two years. That's fascinating. I mean, I wonder if we're going to see similar inquiries into how the pandemic was held in Southeast Asia. And uh, I fear they might not be very forthcoming. <laughs> No, I think just a very different attitude to the to to, to the oversight of government in particular. Mm. So that segues pretty nicely into looking at what the latest developments are. In particular, maybe we should look at aviation then in general and some stats for you. So this week, there are about 6.3 million available airline seats across the region. If we compare that back to 2021, there were only about 4.5 million. So we, we've added on a significant amount and there were about 9.9 .9 million in 2019. So 9.9 .9 million in 2019, 6.3 million in 2022. Not too bad. Okay, it's, 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 not, it's not back there, but we can see it growing. We can see this progression, can't we? Yep, those figures are for OAG. And I think actually the next bunch of stats show show the the positivity really because for the region the southeast asia region last week compared to this week uh, we've seen a 7.9 percent extra capacity added in this week 7.9 percent that's quite a good weekly high um, and that's actually the third highest weekly growth rate worldwide after northeast asia which added 10.8 percent of capacity this week and lower south america which added 9.6 percent capacity now we do know obviously in the Southeast Asia region, we're coming off a much lower base. Um, capacity took so long to, to start recovering. But now that uh, countries are 
fully reopening almost, you know, airlines will start building in that extra capacity once they, they can be sure that demand is going to be there for bookings. That's great. I mean, and if we look at largest air markets for scheduled capacity, um, Southeast Asia isn't doing too badly either. So Indonesia is currently the seventh largest air market for scheduled capacity and Vietnam 17th. Um, so, you know, Southeast Asia represent. We, we are finally rebuilding this, this air capacity. Yeah, and probably the biggest news of the week. I think this one really signifies uh, how Singapore is, is, is moving ahead. Uh, Changi Airport this week announced that it handled 1.14 million passengers in March this year. It's the first time since the start of the pandemic that any airport in Asia Pacific has handled over 1 million monthly international passengers. That brings the 2022 total so far at Changi Airport to 2.56 million passengers. And that almost equals the 3 million passengers in the whole of 2021. So, Hannah, there is growth there. The top five passenger markets at Changi were Australia, India, Malaysia, Thailand, and Indonesia, three of those being Southeast Asian markets, one uh, South Asian market and one Australia, Asia Pacific. So it's a, it's a regional boom, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, and that just goes to show, doesn't it? You know, what we've always been saying that unless all the countries are open, you're not going in Southeast Asia, you're not going to see recovery in your own country. And like you said, there are three of the, um, you know, top markets into Changi Airport, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. Um, you know, that would have been quite a different picture a few months ago. And, and many of these markets wouldn't have been flying into Singapore. And so it just goes to show that really for this region ride recovery, everybody has to be open. There's no point opening and you're the only one. Yeah, that's true. And I also saw a note from Brendan Sobey, uh, aviation uh, consultant who we had on the show last year. And he noted that the difference between uh, Changi and in Thailand, for example, is that a lot of this growth from Changi at the moment is outbound travel, whereas a lot of the growth into Thailand is inbound travel. And that's something we've been talking about probably for the last year, I'd say, Hannah, isn't it? And it is now actually coming to actual reality. You can see that in the statistics. Mm, yeah, exactly. So that leads nicely on, we're doing very well with, with these, onto Thailand. Um, and of course, you know, one of the biggest news stories coming out of the end of last week is Thailand removing its testing requirements, in theory. Now, I have to say in theory, because we all know for Thailand, it's quite a lengthy process of approval. So right now, the CCSA, who are their, their kind of COVID committee, have approved it. Now it's waiting to be in the Royal Gazette. Once it's in the Royal Gazette, then it's law, then it's going to happen. And that has not quite happened yet. But in theory, um, testing will be removed from the 1st of May. Um, so instead of testing go, maybe it's just now go. What's your take, Gary? <laughs> it's great news. I think this has been received very, very positively across the travel industry, not just in Thailand. You know, this is a, an opportunity to make Thailand much more open and to make it a, a more amenable booking option for people around the world because you won't have to do that uh, test on arrival you won't have to book that one night in advance until you get your test results not knowing of course whether you 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 would uh, get a negative result and that would actually impact your holiday so this is great news it is still incremental isn't it Hannah there's this is only part of the the journey completed there is still the Thailand pass system in place you still have to apply for a Thailand pass now there is again talk that that might be removed perhaps in June, the beginning of June is the is the date being discussed right now. Uh, and there's an interesting talk in the in the Thai media at the moment that removing the Thailand pass actually would would really start to boost the the package tour market. 
um, because a lot of package tours at the moment are, are, are veering away from Thailand simply because of the bureaucracy of managing Thailand passes for a number of different people coming in at the same time. So, you know, you're starting to see, as we always know, Hannah, that Thailand likes to make predictions. The latest prediction I read, I think, was from the Thai Tourism Council that if Thailand Pass was removed in June, there's a potential that actually could deliver another 2 million visitors this year. Where that figure comes from, whether it's actually true, I don't know. But those 2 million, it did say, would be driven by package tourists. Yeah, that's interesting. That's another dimension that you... You know, we, we sometimes forget to think about as well as the travel agent in the other countries trying to figure out all of those arrangements. And I imagine trying to do a Thailand pass application for 30 people in a tour group is is not a lot of fun. So like you said, it is incremental and there's still things that need to be removed. But definitely it's, it's a big step forward. If there's no testing at all um, for Thailand, that's, that's going to be an incentive. Um, and of course, a boost for outbound travel as well because they won't then need to have this RT-PCR test on arrival. They won't need to quarantine for one night in a hotel until these arrival, until these test results come out too. So it benefits both ways. And, you know, if we're looking Thailand's overall attitude towards COVID-19, I mean, the, the health ministry, the public health ministry, originally, I think, wanted to declare COVID-19 endemic by, I think it was the 1st of July. And they kind of backtracked that, a little bit on that last week and said, well, we'll see, <laughs> didn't they? Yeah, they did. And I think one of the problems still, as we discussed with Vincent Vichit Vatican last week, is, you know, discussing endemic terms, it, it brings in and incorporates so many different elements. And one of the issues still is Thailand's vaccination rate. I was reading in the Thai press yesterday, I think it's 10% of Thai citizens, which I guess was the population of Thailand, about 70 million. So you know, 7 million people have only had one vaccination dose. Um, so that's quite a high number. You don't know how they're dispersed across the country, whether that's just in particular regions or whether, you know, that that's nationwide. Um, so that's going to be an issue in terms of this endemic goal that they have, whether that's July or whether it's later than that. And there's also talk in the media as well at the moment that perhaps there's a new wave coming into Thailand. But, you know, Thailand does always say this. It, it is very, very cautious in the way that it's it's approaching the virus. So, yeah, it's, it's not a clear road yet. But in terms of the tourism industry, I think, you know, that removing of the, the, the PCR uh, will be received uh, around the world as a, a real sign that Thailand is serious about staying open. I think that's that's really positive. Yeah. So let's move to the other positive story of the week. And this was literally, I think, within hours of the Thailand announcement, I saw news of Singapore and Singapore similarly has decided to remove its testing from uh, today, the 26th of April. Um, and not only are they removing that, but they are also removing nearly all of their other remaining restrictions around COVID-19, their safety measurement, management, something like that, <laughs> um, uh, restrictions. So life, as Singaporeans know it, is about to go back to almost normal, which is brilliant news, isn't it? It's great news. It's you know, it's great news for the for the aviation sector as well. We've again we've been discussing this Hannah over so many months and well two years really. Is that Singapore is such a a pivotal air market for the region, not just in and out, but also connective as well. Uh, and the connective traffic perhaps is just as important as anything else um, for regenerating traffic uh, between the continents, but also across Asia Pacific. So Singapore is extremely vital to to the travel and tourism infrastructure of Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific. And it's great news that it's moving back towards some 
you know, like you said, real normality. And let's hope that lasts. And, you know, let's hope that uh, everybody now, the airlines and, and uh, everybody gets on board to, to start irradiating those frequencies around the region again, because, you know, Singaporean travelers love to travel. Uh, they love to travel in our region and uh, every country wants them back for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And another kind of little story that came out from Singapore last week was how the government there is has almost recognized they were saying, look, we know that Southeast Asia is seen as a single destination for inbound travelers, and we really need to work together to harmonize these travel requirements. I mean, and I know, you know, I've, <laughs> I've bashed the ASEAN travel corridor numerous times on, <laughs> on this podcast. Um, but it does seem like perhaps Singapore might be taking the lead there and just saying, look, you know, we have to work together. We have to work together to get tourists. And this is another way Singapore's removing testing, Thailand's removing testing, Cambodia's removed testing. Baby steps, but we're getting there. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure how that will be received around the region, really, because, you know, other countries are moving towards uh, pretty much full opening. Some, some are already there. I mean, have we gone past the need for ASEAN harmonized approaches or, or is it still really valid? I mean, it's, it's an interesting question because that harmonization, you know, would that last for a, a set period of time or would this be something that goes forward in perpetuity? It particularly, say, for example, we have another variant. Is, that, is it something that's actually preparatory as well as actually easing the way to, to build a recovery right now? What do you think, Hannah? Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, no, no, no good answer for you. I mean, you would hope that it would be a, a kind of medium term and they would take into account these kind of things that could happen. But inevitably, you know, we've really seen... Um, you know, each government take a very singular approach to um, to handling the, the pandemic. So I, I'm not holding out for a, an ASEAN-wide approach to handling the next variant of concern, unfortunately. No, I kind of agree with that. So let's bring it all home then. What's happening in Malaysia, Hannah? Well, there has been an announcement of an announcement tomorrow. <laughs> so... <laughs> As Gary and I were just talking before the, the pod started, we governments here do love an announcement of an announcement. But tomorrow, um, Malaysian government is set to announce some more easing of measures. Now, we don't quite know what that's going to be. There's been rumours, maybe it's going to be about face mask wearing, could be about entry requirements, it could be about phasing out, having to check in everywhere using the COVID-19 app. It will be interesting to see. I mean, my money is on maybe easing a little bit of the testing, but not everything. What's your bet, Gary? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The announcement about an announcement. It was announced that there's going to be a cabinet meeting. And then if the cabinet meeting is successful, then it will be announced to the public. It's uh, it's a very Malaysian way of doing things. Well, what will it be? Well, I think one of the things that is quite likely is there will be some degree of easing of the checking in and checking out of every single venue using a QR code, uh, using the MySajatra app. I think that will be eased. I think it has to be. It really doesn't have any purpose anymore. And it is extremely unpopular as well. Um, Malaysians are starting to rail against that. And we're also starting to see the numbers of check-ins into venues starting to drop because people are just tired of it. I guess another aspect is probably uh, removing of face masks in outdoor environments. I think that's possible. Uh, the numbers have come down quite considerably in terms of cases, and Singapore has dropped it outdoors. I think Cambodia is, is moving towards uh, making masks almost voluntary right now. So I think those will be, in terms of the testing, it's a difficult one. I mean, I don't think that we will see removal of on arrival testing. It may still be a, 
a rapid test. It's that pre-test, it's pre-flight PCR test, which is difficult for travelers coming from overseas to into uh, Malaysia. It's expensive as well. And it doesn't apply on outbound flights from Malaysia. You know, I took a flight from Malaysia to the UK and you don't have to do a pre-flight PCR test to leave the country, but you do to return. It's, it's kind of incongruous that that happens. So I would be hoping that they remove that PCR test before I come back to Malaysia, Hannah. Yeah, I bet you will. <laughs> and if we look at results of the border opening so far, it's actually been relatively successful, particularly the land border between Malaysia and Singapore over Good Friday, which was a long weekend, right, Gary? I guess this was expected, wasn't it? I mean, even if you go back to pre-pandemic years, several years back, you know, Singapore is by far the most important to Malaysia, simply because they're they, they have a land border crossing um, and a lot of Singaporeans live and work in Malaysia. They have relatives in Malaysia. They own properties in Malaysia. They love to travel in Malaysia. It's so much cheaper in terms of the, the, the currency exchange uh, and actually getting even cheaper. So I think Singapore hit a record level against the Malaysian ringgit, ringgit this week. So, you know, Malaysia is a, a very, very low cost destination for Singaporean travelers. Uh, and it's, it is popular. It's, it's very understandable. The small city state that is Singapore, Malaysia has so much more to offer in terms of spaces, uh, beaches and, and cities. And, you know, there's always this issue about Malaysian and Singaporean food uh, as well. They both love each other's foods, um, but they both claim uh, heritage on some of the dishes. So it's quite an interesting sort of relationship there. So, yeah, I mean, as soon as the borders were, were going to open, I think we, we expected this influx. I was down in the south of Malaysia a couple of weeks ago, and there were a lot of Singaporean number plate cars driving around, around Malacca and down in Johor. Um, which are popular areas because that's near to the border with Singapore. I don't think that's a surprise. What, what I did think was quite interesting, Hannah, is there's this story that came out in the media. I think it was in the Singaporean media um, at the end of last week. And that was talking about Malaysia Airlines and Air Asia, their capacity recovery targets. So Malaysia Airlines uh, was interviewed and it said that it's looking to achieve 70% capacity recovery by the end of this year compared to 2019, 70%, that's really high when you look at what some of the other airlines in the region are saying. Air Asia's uh, capacity target was a little bit more opaque. It said it would like to restore 100% of its key routes. It didn't say what its key routes are, and it didn't say on those key routes what its frequencies would be. Um, but it did say that it wanted to restore 100% of its key routes by the end of the year. I think that just shows uh, that both airlines are being quite aggressive, they're being quite positive, and they're trying to play to this general positivity of trying to rebuild travel. But I think they also inbuilt into what they were saying, just uncertainty about how this will actually pan out. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, we've, we've almost seen AirAsia go from being very bullish, and I've, I've seen some really bullish projections on their part, to just a little bit more cautious, actually. And I, I wonder if, you know, we've, I think I've said this before, I wonder if that could be perhaps also linked to increase in fuel and therefore the increase in operational costs. And therefore, it's a little bit harder to, um, to throw caution to the wind when you're opening up new routes. But certainly, yeah, there, there is this optimism or they're projecting this optimism there. And that carries through to the Philippines as well. Cebu Pacific estimates that it's going to return to its pre-pandemic domestic capacity by the end of this month, um, which is really impressive. Um, Philippine Airlines uh, reported that it hit 80% of its domestic capacity over the Holy Week, over Easter travels. Now, I don't think it's anticipating to stay at 80%. I think that obviously it's a peak uh, domestic travel time for the Philippines. But there is certainly this optimism 
particularly in the Philippines as well, that the travel is on the up. Um, and there was a really interesting story last week, and this is something that we've not seen in the media for a very long time, um, but over tourism. So Boracay Island, um, over the, the Holy Week um, up to Easter, actually surpassed its allowed capacity. So there's only meant to be around 19,000 or so um, people visiting per day in Boracay. And it actually hit over 22,000 on two days um, during that week. So officials are really under fire for that. But it's a, it's, it's a funny thing to see a headline about over capacity and over tourism in this, you know, in, in a time when we were looking at Philippines last year, um, Easter was a washout. They, you know, pr- pretty much couldn't travel anywhere. So it's, it's a complete reversal. Yeah, that re- return of the word over tourism, something we haven't seen really at all for the last two years. There's a lot of talk about it in Europe that this summer there will be a lot of over tourism in some of the key cities of Europe. Um, but in Asia, yeah, you're right. You know, it's uh, seeing that back is, uh, it, well, I guess it's a positive sign. It's a negative sign as well, isn't it? It shows that there is pent up demand as it's, as it's so often termed. But, you know, will that pent up demand as be channeled into the obvious destinations? Will all this talk that we heard uh, and we, you know, probably propagated ourselves at times during the pandemic that people will want to get to less touristed place, get out into nature? Um, you know, was that just a transient phase? Will people head back to the places they know and love best? I guess we, we will see. Yeah, exactly. And the other interesting thing that came out of this was that the officials said that one of the reasons why this happened was that travel patterns had changed. So essentially, they were expecting more people to arrive by flight. And instead, they arrived by land. And of course, by flight, you can control um, you know, they have a set number of, of, of seats that can arrive into um, go to Boracay per day, but by land, that's a different matter. So it's, it's you know, this, this, these changing patterns are also going to, you know, surprise, surprise people, I think. So like you said, it's, are they going to go for the obvious destinations and are they going to go there in the normal ways? A lot of uncertainty still. Yeah, watch this space. So let's move on into Cambodia, Hannah. What's happening there? Yeah, well, this was, a, again, like a, a really positive story. You can see I'm feeling pretty upbeat at the moment. So over um, the Khmer New Year, they actually had over 5 million travellers. Now, these are both domestic and um, international travellers um, travelling over throughout the country, 5 million. Um, not too bad, not too shabby, Cambodia, um, generating uh, about $275 million. That, I think, really demonstrates that there is still this this demand for domestic travel within Cambodia which is, is, is really nice to see. And, you know, their international travellers are still pretty low, but it is starting to increase bit by bit as air connectivity um, builds up again. Yeah, all good news. Into Indonesia, uh, international travel, the, the visa on uh, arrival policy has been expanded to more checkpoints uh, earlier this month, Hannah. But the, the big news really in Indonesia, similar to Malaysia, is it's gearing up for the big Eid, the big Lebaran travel season. Yeah, exactly. And it being Indonesia (laughs) with such a large population, we're talking millions of people. Um, So the tourism ministry is predicting around 51 to 59.5 million people are going to visit tourist sites over uh, Lebaran, over Eid, uh, generating about 72 trillion Indonesian rupiah. It's, It's a massive movement of people that are going around. And of course, there is that 
worry it could trigger another wave. They've made booster shots mandatory in theory if you do want to return to your hometown. But it's going to be a big period for domestic travel and hopefully tourism stakeholders are really going to be able to ride that wave. Yep, totally agree. So let's move on to Vietnam, which is also gearing up for for a holiday weekend. Hannah, there's uh, optimism there too. Yeah, it's uh, like you know, we keep saying April is, is the month for domestic travel, really. Um, so they are gearing up for this weekend. So this weekend they have reunification day, um, followed by Labor Day, so a long weekend. And airlines are adding huge amounts of capacity. Um, so I think right now the Vietnam Airlines group has over 524,000 seats across domestic and international routes. Lots of reports about hotels hitting very high occupancy rates, in the key tourism spots as well for that time. But there's a different side to that when it comes to international travel, isn't there, Gary? Yeah, there is. So uh, an article this week uh, in Vietnam Express stating the obvious, really, but saying that without China, without South Korea and without Japan, that the recovery in Vietnam is going to be very slow. Here's a good stat. I didn't realize this, Hannah. Those three countries, China, South Korea and Japan, accounted for almost 67% of all visitors to Vietnam in 2019. China's market, outbound market, is closed, probably will be for, for the foreseeable future, perhaps for the whole year. South Koreans do seem to be start traveling. There's a lot of bookings there at the moment for the summer season. Uh, so there's optimism that some of those, uh, I think a lot of South Koreans will travel into Europe and into the, uh, North America. But a, a percentage will definitely come into Southeast Asia and Vietnam and Philippines possibly will be beneficiaries there, perhaps Thailand too. The Japan market really hasn't got going yet. There are still issues about returning back to Japan and the quarantine you'd have to do. Again, there's hope that some of those restrictions will be lifted in the coming weeks or months. But Japan is moving into an election season, so there's a, there's a bit of complications there. Um, but the, the Japan outbound market is so important as well. The airlines rely on it. So you know, we would hope that for the summer season, Japanese travelers will be traveling back into Southeast Asia. And Vietnam, of course, would welcome those back because uh, it's, a, it's a popular destination. Yeah, that's a great stat, 67%. Yeah, that's a, it's going to be hard for them to see a tourism recovery without those markets coming back in that case. And moving on to their neighbor, Little Laos. We can't, we can't miss Laos out. I guess new announcement of an announcement, kind of, again. So, you know, the prime minister has said that the green travel zone scheme uh, will be removed or rehauled, but there's no real concrete you know, action around what exactly that means and what the timelines are going to be. Um, so it looks like kind of good news for Laos, but again, what in what shape is very unclear. But what is clear right now is that the current scheme isn't working. They've had incredibly few visitors, kind of de- depressing numbers when when you read them. They They really need to reopen in a much larger scale to be able to to start generating some serious tourism revenue. Yep, totally agree. So in summary, Hannah, where we are right now, the 26th of April, 2022, looking as though domestic tourism is strong in most countries of the region and perhaps going to get even stronger in the the coming days and weeks. International travel restrictions are starting to be removed. We're moving towards fully open status in most countries of the region. Now we have to see whether this pent-up demand and whether bookings for the rest of the year will follow. We know there are some economic headwinds up ahead. We do know also this is something that's happening globally, that that flight tickets are expensive, particularly traveling intercontinentally right now. Flight prices are high, and they don't look as though they're going to be coming down 
there's not going to be a huge amount of discounting on on international flights it doesn't seem over the summer so you know, there are going to be some barriers to travel is that good news for regional travel perhaps that will mean uh, more travelers will be contained within the region rather than going to Europe or to the United States I guess we still have to wait and see Hannah yeah exactly but yes domestic travel strong international travel slowly recovering but where will it go in uh, second half of the year is anybody's guess yeah watch this space exactly and listen to the podcast. So <laughs> that brings us to the end of this edition. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or we missed out. You can drop us an email or message us on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode including this rarely upbeat one on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. And please remember that if you do tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could give us a quick rating and a review, that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. We look forward to talking to you then.